gone? I think it is. So <laughs> uh, pro tip, uh, when you go to preach, make sure that your daughter hasn't put anything in your shoe because right now there's something in my shoe. <laughs> Anyways, and I was actually working on this sermon uh, sometime this week, one of the evenings, and struggling with it. Um, and just this passage is really heavy. There's a lot of content in it, and there's a lot to grapple with. And my wife jokingly says, well, why don't you go and try to find inspiration from any great bearded pastors? And uh, so we kind of got to thinking, what, who are these great bearded pastors? I, we couldn't think of anything because we thought of Matt Chandler, and he definitely doesn't have a beard. And John MacArthur also definitely doesn't have a beard. John Piper, Tim Keller, and Francis Chan. And you might think that's a beard, but it's not. That's desperately trying to be a beard, but it's more of a terrible goatee. (laughs) So the new universal truth that is since the invention of the camera, there's been no great bearded pastors. Hopefully this is an exception. And if there are some other exceptions, please let me know. That would be encouraging. Um, But let's dig in. This passage that we read already, uh, to me, is a great encouragement and a powerful and tremendous warning And I broke it up into four really creative sections. The first one's called endurance. The second one's called a warning. Third, discipline. And fourth, especially creative, application. (laughs) So I want to start with a couple questions. How is your race going? How is your Christian race going? Are you running with your eyes on the prize? Or are you kind of jogging or slowing down? Maybe you're just walking. Or perhaps you've seen your favorite store by the side of the road, mine's Canadian Tire, (laughs) and you're lost somewhere down the tool aisle, and you've forgotten that the race is even going on. Perhaps we don't really even know how to measure whether our race is going well. How are we doing? How do I even know how I'm doing? Am I racing? Am I running? Or am I lost at Canadian Tire? Well, this passage has two examples. One example endures through the temptations and trials, and the other one quits. And those two examples are Jesus and Esau. So let's start with Jesus. And we'll turn to Hebrews 12, verse 1 again, and we'll read together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So I think one of the key and central questions for this passage is, is what is endurance? It's mentioned four times, and it comes from the Greek word, and I'm going to butcher this, so I apologize, Tom specifically, (laughs) hypomone, which means to stay under, remain, persevere, and abide cheerfully. And the truth is, even on my best days, I can't seem to do that. I don't know about you, but I can't. Um, (laughs) Just Friday night, I was working away on the sermon. I was using my work laptop, 
And uh, I get a message from a, a colleague of mine, actually a, a boss. And uh, we got to chatting for a little while, and then he asks, what's keeping you from enjoying the weekend? Oh, man. <laughs> He's going to think I'm that Christian, right? And so, well, the hospital job at Sundry. <laughs> and that's true. Maybe I was working on a little bit of work, but really what I was working on and what I told him after that was, I'm also preparing, brace yourself, to preach on Sunday. And so after a few moments pause, there's a bit of a break there, and I'm kind of sweating a little bit. He says, whoa. And <laughs> um, this is actually like word for word what happened. That's crazy. <laughs> Good for you. And a whole service or just part of it? Sorry, guys, it's the whole thing. <laughs> so it's going to be all 30 minutes if you're lucky. And that's what I told them. 30 minutes, the whole preaching part anyways. But here is this moment in my life. Here I was reading through this passage. It was talking about endurance, running the race, fighting through that temptation, persevering, and here's this moment that was placed right in front of me as I'm preparing the sermon. And as you can see, I struggled with it. Why is it that even on these small things that we struggle? And I think all of us do these things. We all struggle. Uh, I was looking up some statistics. 50% of evangelical pastors viewed pornography in the last year. 53% of promise keeper men viewed pornography in the week leading up to the study. 17% of Christian women in the study admitted to struggling with pornography, addiction. And that might not be your poison, but perhaps you want friends so badly that you're willing to compromise on what you believe. Or perhaps you're bitter with your husband or your wife, or you're bitter that you don't have a husband or wife. Maybe there's this lady at work who you know every time you go by her desk, she just doesn't stop talking. It's just like, oh man, I want to avoid her desk. And then you go, you avoid her desk and you turn around the corner and you gossip to a coworker about her. Or maybe you're just angry with your family members or there's this TV show that's so well produced, but it's, you know it's bad, but you watch it anyways. Colossians 3, 5 to 9 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So the question is, what is endurance? How are we running this race? What, does it, what is the standard for this Christian spiritual race? Well, yes, it is not sinning, and that is the standard. But it's not just that. Endurance isn't just simply pushing through and persevering through temptation. It's also avoid, it's avoiding the evil things, but it's pushing on to more than that. Colossians continues in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And in case you think you have that mastered, Deuteronomy 15 verse 11 says, You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor. And Matthew 5.43 says, You have heard that it is said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what is the standard for this spiritual race we're on? What is the goal that we're supposed to run towards? Jesus, the king of grace and mercy, in Matthew 5.48, says, You, therefore, must be perfect. Perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. So that's the standard, perfection. That's what God has laid out for us. And not just God, Jesus, the king of mercy and grace. That's the standard. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. Thanks be to God for the gospel, eh? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So by grace and by faith in God, we have been saved from our sins. We have fallen short. We have. But by grace and faith in Christ, he has saved us. And not only that, by faith, he gives us the strength to endure. Endurance, if we look at the definition again, is to stay under, remain, persevere, and abide cheerfully. Abide cheerfully. So the next photo I've got up here is a sea stack off the coast of Ireland and stood there for thousands and thousands of years. And moment after moment, day after day, hour after hour, ceaselessly the wind and the waves are hitting up against that rock. And what is causing it to stand firm? What is causing it to endure? It's got a solid foundation. It's abiding in a solid foundation. There is no spiritual endurance without abiding in the hand of God. There's no spiritual endurance without abiding in the hand of God. Real endurance is cheerful perseverance powered by abiding in God's strength. And this is all throughout Scripture. For example, if we turn to Philippians 4, verse 13, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Psalm 18.1 says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And Colossians 2.6-7 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. So yes, we will face temptations and trials. The road will be hard. This race will be a test. But we can persevere by abiding in God's strength. And you may say, well, I still fail. I try to abide in the Lord's strength, but I still fail. And that's why I find Hebrews 11 so encouraging. Who's this great crowd of witnesses? It's a bunch of failures. It's a bunch of failures, just like you and me. Abraham, twice he gave up his wife, saying she was his sister. David, a murderer and an adulterer. And Gideon, crippled by doubt and fear. Thanks to God for his grace and mercy. Hey? Thanks to God. 
But this passage also has a really heavy, tremendous warning. Hebrews 12, 15 to 17 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral like, or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So Esau, um, what's the big deal? It just gave up his birthright, right? Like, in our day, that doesn't seem significant. I'm the oldest. I didn't get anything special. What's so big about the birthright? Well, in its day, in the culture as a whole, it carried a couple significant advantages, so to speak. First, you'd have a larger portion of the inheritance when your dad passed away. So Esau was in line for that. He was going to get a larger portion of the inheritance. And not only that, the authority over the entire tribe would pass from his father to the person with the birthright, which is Esau in this case. So he would have authority over the whole tribe, the whole family at that point. But unique from the circumstances even of that day, the sons of Abraham would have had a special, special birthright. And that would have been a special priestly function and a special relationship with God. That birthright gave that to the, to the eldest, and it was a special position of, a, of uh, essentially being the priest for that family, for the, for the tribe. And not only that, it was the special promise of the Messiah coming through your birth line. So Esau, when he goes up to Jacob and says, I would rather have that soup than the birthright, he's saying, no, I don't care about Jesus coming from my birth line. And no, I don't care about my special relationship with the Lord. And I don't care about this high priest function. I don't care. I would rather have that bowl of soup. And Jacob says, will you swear to me that I can have that? I want that. And Esau says, I swear. You can have it. I don't care. Because Esau would rather have momentary pleasure than to endure and come up with eternal treasures. So what do we want instead of those eternal treasures? What do we want instead of God? Are you jealous that others have a spouse and not you? In that jealousy, you are telling the Lord that he is not enough. I want a husband. I want a wife. I don't want you, Lord. Or perhaps... You just got home from work. You open the door and you're walking towards the door of the house and you can already hear the screams and cries of the children. And you open the door and here's your wife holding up one screaming kiddo and the other's screaming over there and she's crying and says, take, this, take her, take her. <laughs> right? Never happens. <laughs> and you say to yourself, you know what, I, I don't want to do this. I want to go downstairs. I want to watch sports. Check my Facebook. I need a break. And in that moment, you're saying, you know what, Lord? You aren't enough for me. Your strength is not enough for me. I need Facebook. I need sports. Or perhaps you just got home from getting groceries and uh, you've already done two loads of laundry. You've cleaned all the bathrooms. And 
any minute now you'll forget how to speak the English language. And as you open the door again, the neighbor drives up. And you've never had them over, even though they've lived by you for years. Maybe, maybe next week, or maybe the month, month after that. After all, I'm kind of shy, and I already have so many relationships that I have to maintain. How can I take on one more? And in that moment, you're saying, Lord, my comfort, my momentary pleasure is more important than my relationship with you, and it's more important than that person's relationship with you. We all fail in these ways. But let's read the passage again and heed the warning. When Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So does that mean that Esau lost his faith? No. He never had faith. I found what John MacArthur said about this passage quite helpful. He says that Esau desired God's blessings, but he did not want God. He regretted what he had done, but he did not repent. Esau is an example of those who willfully sin against God and who are given no second chance because of their exposure to the truth and their advanced state of hardness. So Esau habitually chose momentary gratification instead of enduring but eternally valuable. Are you and I sitting in these church chairs desiring God's blessings and not wanting God? Are we, like Esau, habitually giving in to our own selfish desires instead of enduring? Be careful. Faith without works is dead. Test yourself whether you have put your faith in Christ. I will read the warning again. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So what about us? Are we like Esau? Are we continually choosing the momentary pleasures over top of what's eternally valuable? If that's true, repent now, or risk failing to obtain the grace of God. Or perhaps we're like Gideon or David. We sure want to love the Lord. We want to serve him. But we do make mistakes. Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. I want to run this race with endurance. So what? So when the next wave comes, endure. Cheerfully persevere by abiding in God's strength. And when you get home and the kids are crying again, persevere by abiding in God's strength. When you want a spouse to share life with, persevere by abiding in God's strength. When you bump into the neighbor shoveling the snow, persevere by abiding in God's strength. 
So let's do a recap of what we've learned so far. First, we are all broken people. We are all failing. But if we have put our faith in Christ, we can find strength in him to persevere through the trials of life, both big and small. We need to test ourselves, secondly, to see if we want God or if we want what he can give us. Are you living life for eternal treasure or for momentary gratification? So what else does the Lord have to teach us? Let's start again from verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Let's park there for a moment. The NIV for that last verse, verse 7 there, says, Endure hardship as discipline. And the passage actually repeats that word discipline on eight different occasions. And excuse me again as I try this Greek word out, but uh, paideo, I don't know if that's how you say it, but anyways, it can be defined as training or education. I thought that really interesting. So why don't we read that passage again, and this time I'll replace the word discipline with the word education or training. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the education of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord trains the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for education that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not train? If you are left without education in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who trained us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the spirit of spirits and live? For they educated us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he trains us for our own good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all education seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what does endure hardship as discipline mean? It means that the Lord uses our everyday trials and temptations as our spiritual education. And verse 11 really resonates with me when I think of it that way. For the moment all education seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And I, I agree with that passage. Education is miserable. <laughs> I, I, maybe you guys are the same way, but for example, I went into my first year of engineering, which I flunked, and that was miserable. <laughs> it was painful. And afterwards, I, I went to Nate, and it was a two-year program. It was shorter because I didn't want it to extend the misery. And, uh, <laughs> and I didn't like that either. But I kept my eye on the goal. I endured because I knew the outcome. And so what was the outcome? I was trained in the discipline of civil engineering technology. And what is the fruit that that's yielded for me? Well, I've worked on airport runways. I've worked on skyscrapers and recreation facilities and hotels and, and all sorts of other things. And that's, it's yielded a fruit. And yes, it was miserable. I hated it, frankly. <laughs> 
but, but look at what this training, this discipline has yielded, right? James 1, 2-4, I think, kind of really nicely ties in here. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And this is what the Lord, as our perfect Father, wants for us. He's going to educate you if you are willing to endure. And yes, it will be tough. And no, it won't last the two years my program at Nate did. It's going to be a lifetime. It's going to be till the end. But the Christian race is not a sprint. It's a marathon. But with each passing year, you will see the fruit of that endurance. You will see ever-increasing righteousness. So I ask you, have you seen increasing righteousness in your life? Or have you been so distracted by the passing pleasures of the world that you're in the same place you were last year? In Revelation 3, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Is that not the church today? Is that not you and I? So what should we do? Hebrews 12, 12. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. What you do, lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. But okay, okay, but what does that mean for me today? What does it mean for me tomorrow? What about next week? Open your Bible. Say to the Lord, Lord, help me abide in you today. And start reading. How can you abide in a God that you do not know? Don't be like Esau, wanting, the, to, wanting what the Lord can offer, but not wanting the Lord himself. And if you're tired, you just, I don't know, want to play a computer game or just lay on the couch, don't be like Esau. Endure. Do not sell what is eternally valuable for momentary gratification. And if you do open the word, you'll find, like everyone else, there's not a soul on earth who can read that book and not receive the discipline of the Lord. We read Colossians 3, 5-9 to earlier, and I think it's a perfect example. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have been 
seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So you will read a passage like that, and you'll go through your day, and you'll see those very things face to face in the day. You'll be faced with that test or a trial where you'll have to put that to practice, and you'll say, Lord, I'm going to abide in you. I'm going to rely on your strength, and you'll endure. And it'll be just like when on Friday night my coworker sends me a message and says, what you're working on? And in that moment, I had to think about what I had been reading in the Bible and think about who the Lord is and know that he is strong enough I can abide this little test. I'm working on a sermon. So you'll face those moments if you abide in him and you'll be able to endure if you abide in him. Cheerfully persevere by abiding in the Lord's strength. So that's my first practical tip. My second practical tip is to put regular spiritual checkpoints into your life. And this is something Anne and I have just started doing. Each Thursday night, we turn off our phones, we turn off the TV, turn off the computers, and we just spend some time together reflecting on what the Lord had taught us over that last week. What is he teaching me? What is he disciplining me in? And it's, it's so cool. You can look over the past week with your wife or your friend or whoever it happens to be that you're meeting with. And you can say, I can see what the Lord has done in my life over this last week. I can see how he's training me and that there's this increasing righteousness. Or maybe you'll say, no, I'm in the same place I'm in last week. And Lord, forgive me. I'm so faulted and failing. But Lord, help me. Give me strength to abide in you this next week. Help me endure. One other thing we're doing on, on that weekly basis is we're uh, saying, Lord, how would you have us reach out to our community? What's our family mission? And so I challenge uh, you husbands in your families to do this. Set a, a weekly kind of checkpoint in your life where you can sit down with your, your wife and say, okay, how are we doing? What has the Lord taught us this last week? What has the Lord trained us in? And what are we doing together as a family to serve him? And you don't need to be married. You don't need to be married to do this. You can do this in your small groups with a friend or in, in a Bible study. And you definitely should be doing it with the Lord one-on-one as well. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, will you, like Jesus, choose to endure? Will you cheerfully persevere by abiding in God's strength? Know that while the Lord's discipline is unpleasant, it does yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do not go through life attending church but only wanting what God can give you. Do not risk missing the grace of God by indulging in momentary pleasures. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this passage, it weighs heavily on me. 
And Lord, I know, I know I am broken and I know I need you. So help me to abide in you, to persevere by your strength in the tests and temptations of the day. Help me to be disciplined by you, to, to be in your word and learning from you. And Lord, I pray that you use all that to, to yield fruits of righteousness. Pray this in your name. Amen.